Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 165 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this second installment of our Breaking Bloody series, where I'm determined to unlock the secrets of the perfect Bloody Mary, a cocktail that, to be honest, I'm not even all that fond of. But you know what? It's a drink that spawned a category of its own. It's ubiquitous at brunches around the world. There's a veritable arms race dedicated to upping the ante on outrageous garnishes, And so for all these reasons and more, I'm dead set on demystifying it for all our collective benefit. Last time around, we talked tomatoes with tomato expert Craig LeHoulier, and this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with bartender and drinks writer Brian Bartles, author of the critically acclaimed book, The Bloody Mary, The Lore and Legend of a Cocktail Classic, with recipes for brunch and beyond. But since it's my tendency to bury the lead a bit, let's Pump the brakes just for a second and give you the opportunity to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Red Eye, which is one of many riffs and spin-offs of the Bloody Mary that arose during the early to mid 20th century. On the surface, it looks like a Michelada without the use of citrus, but once popular culture got a hold of this drink, well, what we got was the monstrosity that Brian Brown mixes for Tom Cruise in the 1988 movie Cocktail. A drink that contains not only beer, tomato juice, salt, and pepper, but also a whole raw egg and a handful of aspirin. In truth, what we're seeing here is the merging of the red eye with another classic hangover cure, the prairie oyster, which is a type of shooter comprised of either a whole egg or just an egg yolk, seasoned with pepper, salt, hot sauce, and Worcestershire sauce. Obviously, a lot of these ingredients, whether you're looking at the red eye or the prairie oyster, are playing the same flavor notes that we see in the Bloody Mary. But if you polled 10 people, I bet only one or two of them are gonna be comfortable downing a raw egg. So what you need to know about the red eye is that it's usually something like a two to one mixture of beer to tomato juice seasoned with salt, pepper, hot sauce, and Worcestershire sauce, but rarely anything else. It's very similar to its cousin, the Michelada, except you're not gonna see fun Mexican spices or lime juice being used in this formulation all that often. You could also think of the red eye as a lazy man's Bloody Mary because it doesn't contain any sophisticated ingredients, preparation methods, or garnishes. It's a reach into the fridge drink where everything's supposed to be right there. The whole idea is you can build it without even stirring it and then take a few good slugs to help dull your hangover. But luckily for us, our guest, Brian Bartles, was kind enough to provide a slightly more balanced and culinary recipe that he enjoyed at a bar in Omaha, Nebraska called fittingly Early Bird. To make what Brian has affectionately named the Red Eye to Omaha, you'll need seven ounces of chilled tomato juice, preferably Campbell's, Sacramento, or Knudsen's. Seven ounces of cold, crisp, dry lager. With the craft beer boom out there, I'm betting that there's somebody in your area that makes a really good craft version of what a lager can be. 
four dashes of Chipotle Tabasco, six dashes of Worcestershire sauce, and a healthy pinch of kosher salt. Combine these ingredients in ideally a chilled 16 ounce pint glass, stir and sip. There's no garnish here because let's face it, if you're hungover enough to need a red eye, then you're too hungover to play around with fancy garnishes. Two moves that I do like here that slightly elevate this beverage are the evening out of the tomato juice and beer ratios, which certainly moves it in the direction of a Bloody Mary, as well as the slight attention to detail required to source or create a Chipotle Tabasco sauce, making it just that little bit more interesting than it might be otherwise. So now that you've found the cure for whatever terrible things you've been doing to your liver during this mess of a quarantine we're all facing, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this bloody interesting conversation with author, bartender, and bar owner Brian Bartles, some of the topics we discuss include... A little briefing on the state of the industry from Brian's viewpoint, having launched his bar and eatery Settle Down Madison in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. The history of the Bloody Mary cocktail, including a lengthy discussion of the two key players in its origin story, bartender Ferdinand Pete Petchu and vaudevillian George Jessel. How the Bloody Mary spawned various riffs and spinoffs, including the Red Snapper, the Micheleta, the Bloody Caesar, and of course the aforementioned Red Eye. Why Brian considers the Bloody Mary a bit of a moving target in terms of its formulation. In essence, why it's such a slippery, variable drink, and yet nobody seems to have any problems with the inconsistency of recipes out there. Some thoughts on brunch, and why Brian falls out of step with many professional bartenders by defending it as a bastion of conviviality in today's world some pointed and surprisingly optimistic projections about the future of the Bloody Mary, a preview of Brian's newest book project, The United States of Cocktails, and much, much more. Brian is an amazing person in that he embodies the really precise, methodic, scrupulous mindset of a writer, while also possessing a wealth of on-the-ground industry experience working in high-volume bars, developing food and drink programs, and providing his guests with best-in-class hospitality experiences. It's a rare combo when you can find someone who's willing to jump into the melee of food and beverage service and then make enough time to distance himself and write about it so that all of us on the outside can understand it just that much better. That's what I like so much about Brian's writing, and I think that's exactly why you'll be delighted by his insights in this episode. With that, please enjoy this lighthearted yet thorough conversation with Bloody Mary expert, bar owner, and author, Brian Bartles. Brian, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So before we jump into all things Bloody Mary and then, uh, of course, some of the newer projects that you've got going on here, can you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners and talk a little bit about what you do? Certainly, yeah. I'm... Um... I've been a lifelong bartender since I've been able to uh, legally work behind the stick. Uh, I grew up in small town, Madison, uh, small town Wisconsin, um, but in college and undergraduate, lived in Madison, and that's where I learned to bartend uh, amidst the college drinking society. So um, it taught me how to be pretty fast early on. And then subsequently, uh, post-college, moved out to New York and uh, developed into some really great restaurants and bars and 
eventually opened uh, some restaurants of my own with a business partner who I knew from college time in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, our restaurant company kind of grew over the last 10 years to uh, um, have about eight spots in the city. And uh, they were called Happy Cooking Hospitality. Um, uh, I also continued writing while I was working um, in the bars and restaurants and uh, was able to publish a book on the Bloody Mary a few years ago with 10 Speed uh, that came out in 2017. And I'm recently celebrating my newest book uh, as I've just moved back to Madison, Wisconsin to open a tavern called the Settle Down Tavern. And uh, the new book is called The United States of Cocktail. Awesome. So, yeah, that's a really succinct summary of, of what is a, a very uh, kind of extensive and uh, self-transformative and, and self-reinventing resume, it seems like. Uh, I, I imagine that, you know, there's there's obviously some similarities to, you know, a, a hectic bar in Madison and uh, in a hectic bar in New York. There's some, some things that are going to carry over, but um, it seems like you've got a real breadth of um, just kind of situational bartending knowledge uh, based on all of the different types of venues you've worked at. Does that sound about right? That is very accurate. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, it, it, I was taught to to learn uh, speed first with the college crowd, and then New York taught me finesse and being a little bit more um, sophisticated in many respects. You know how to make a, a proper martini and and appreciate those cocktails while also still celebrating the the conviviality of uh, a full room of people. Right. Right. And obviously. Um, you know, that's, that's a little bit tricky these days. Um, how, how are things going with settle down? Like I, I'm almost petrified to ask based on how many bars in DC have, have just closed. Right. Uh, you know, no day comes easy to us and that's kind of the reality for everyone right now beyond just bars and restaurants. I would get, I would guess. Um, and we opened, uh, in the middle of everything kind of shutting down. There was lockdown in March, and for months we were postponing our opening. And eventually, Madison uh, was able to allow people indoors for dining and drinking. Um, and so we opened for just takeout and curbside uh, on May 26th. And uh, at the time, they were allowing 50% capacity. So we eventually, uh, in early June, opened, but then upticks in numbers started happening across the, the state and they shrunk that to 25%. Um, mm. So it kind of clipped our wings right away. Um, we have a 48 seat capacity tavern. So 12 people are, is our maximum for that, that indoor tavern. And that's kind of tough. Um, <laughs> if you can imagine uh, for a brand new place who needs to actually like pay their bills and uh, get out of, uh, the ground a little bit more. So uh, it's been a struggle. We are lucky enough to have the outdoor patio because the nice weather in the summertime has made it a little bit more easy for us to actually serve people. But still, it's we're battling a lot of factors right now. Yeah, and I imagine in Wisconsin, you can only get away with heat lamps uh, so far into the uh, into the autumn and winter. Yeah, exactly. Um, we are looking at beautiful fall weather right now. It gets cold at night. Um, but this week, you know, last week it rained all week and it was cold and uh, nobody came out. So it was mm -hmm. pretty deflating. But this week is, is a little bit better because the sun is out. 
Well, that's good. Um, I mean, all of our all of our thoughts go out to you know you and all the other bar owners. Um, it's, it's a time of uncertainty. It's a time of you know uh, innovation, right? Things are you know we we find creative ways around some of these problems. Um, unfortunately, um, not everybody's runway is is able to sustain that, and especially if you're you know a restaurant or a restaurant group with a sort of entrenched mentality or, or an entrenched way of doing things. Um, you know, it's like turning a battleship. It doesn't happen, uh, immediately. So, uh, you know, we're going to keep on continuing to watch and, and report on, you know, how things in the bar world are, are, are doing. Um, but I think, um, I think we should turn our attention here to maybe some, some more, or perhaps less doom and gloom stuff here and, and talk a little bit about, um, about your book, uh, especially concerning the history of the Bloody Mary. You know, there's 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 a number of books on Bloody Marys out there. Um, so I was wondering if you might first kind of explain what makes your book special and useful in the in the landscape of Bloody Mary books. And then we can, uh, I think, jump into some of the history, which I, I really enjoy the way um, it's, it's told in your book. Yeah, of course. Um... There have been a couple other books published on the Bloody Mary, yeah, fortunately enough. Um, and I've uh, been lucky enough to utilize all those for my research for the book. Um, it kind of arrived to me in an advantageous way. Uh, a dear friend of mine was working on the Death & Co. book for 10 Speed and mentioned to me that they were interested in publishing um, a book on the Bloody Mary and at the time, he and I were working together in New York, and he said, I know the perfect guy who does the brunch programs and, and bar programs for Happy Cooking. Um, and as it turns out, I was very, very uh, blessed because that was the first cocktail I ever learned to make. Uh, I, I, I first started my bartending career uh, behind the bar at brunch, and so I was taught to learn how to make a Bloody Mary early on. And in Wisconsin, that's pretty sacred territory when it comes to understanding and appreciating Bloody Marys. People uh, in Wisconsin work, uh, they, they, they are hard workers and appreciate a, a quality cocktail on the weekends, to say the least. And um, the Bloody Mary is the beginning of the weekend, really, in many respects. So um, it's met with a lot of um, respect and admiration and pride in, in and around the Midwest, for sure. Um, and I always wanted to, I'm a writer first and foremost. I started writing when I was 18 years old before I became bar, a bartender. And I just love telling stories and being behind a bar enabled me to tell those kind of stories in, in so many different ways. Uh, and every cocktail has a story. And I was really lucky to have um, a perspective on not only my background with it, but uh, some other fellow bartenders whose voices are featured in the book. And uh, dig a little bit further into the history and origin of where it was created, which is kind of fascinating uh, in terms of if, if people wanted to um, explore it a little further. Yeah, there's some competitive voices that, that claim the, the Bloody Mary history. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, has, it is actually one of the more interesting cocktail histories that I've run into. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's easy enough to come across a cocktail that has an origin story, uh, but rarely do you come across cocktails that sort of have an, an origins journey or sort of an, an evolution. The, the, 
uh, the sidecar to me is one of those. There's the London version, the Paris version. It went from an equal parts to a non-equal parts. And, um, you know, the, the, the margaritas, another that I can think of that kind of had a, a journey or an evolution, although that one's a little bit cloudier. Um, so why don't you just jump us right into the story? When did something that looked like a Bloody Mary or something that was actually called a Bloody Mary actually appear on a menu or, you know, get served to a person? Well, the, the easiest, cleanest answer would be uh, post-prohibition uh, in New York at the St. Regis Hotel, which kind of put the Bloody Mary on the map. And still to this day, it gets many references as being the origin and uh, go-to source for the who created the Bloody Mary and it's, and it's like most clean origins. And I, I still stand behind uh, how those, those, at least that element of it's part of in history holds up in many respects. Um, other people have associated it with being in Paris um, and the bartender who originally, who actually is in many respects, um, celebrated as creating the Bloody Mary was also in Paris in the 1920s during Prohibition and uh, ostensibly was making an early version of the Bloody Mary. It's not the one we know today with, that is associated with season, seasonings and spices. It's, it's much more of a, a you know, fair essence Bloody Mary, uh, fresh tomato juice, vodka, and a little bit, maybe a little bit of spice, but really nothing more than that. It was kind of a, um, um, at that time, bear in mind, there was no canned tomato juice. People were actually muddling tomatoes to make the juice, um, which was a unique way of dealing with a full bar, um, all things considered. And vodka was kind of scarce, especially in the United States uh, during Prohibition, like many other spirits, it was difficult to actually come across something. Um, that resembled a, a well-balanced cocktail, um, given bathtub gin and all of its um, varying flavors and ingredients. But um, the bartender, uh, the celebrated bartender, who's kind of really like heralded as being the uh, originator of the Bloody Mary, was named Fernand Pete, or Pete, as he was uh, nicknamed. Uh, Petit was his last name. And he was a French bartender who worked at Harry's New York Bar in Paris. Uh, in the 1920s, and he eventually moved to New York uh, post-prohibition around 1933 and got a job being head bartender at the prestigious uh, New York St. Regis Hotel at the King Cole Bar and put on a, a, a cocktail there shortly thereafter that people were raving about, which was a Bloody Mary uh, in its most familiar way that we associate it with today, which is um, a Bloody Mary with uh, um, vodka, black pepper, salt, uh, Worcestershire, spices, and, and often lemon juice. Um, pretty much has that like um, quintessential rounded flavor and a little cayenne pepper always uh, made, a, made a difference back then uh, and still does today with, in the form of Tabasco. Um, so Petiu was the one who kind of put it on the map, but for years and years, because history and the way that we view it with uh, a lot of cocktails, and you just mentioned two important ones, the sidecar and the margarita, which are still popular and noteworthy today, 
um, it gets a little cloudy because people weren't necessarily documenting those drinks back then. And if you created something or started a, um, a trend, it sometimes didn't reach publication until many years later. And so it's kind of fascinating to be uh, caught in that little time loop, uh, or, or if you will, just kind of a, a murky, murky specificity about when drinks were created. Um, there's publications that came out that were the first of their kind to, to publish Bloody Mary recipes, but they weren't necessarily the originators um, of the drink. So it's kind of interesting to, um, to go down those rabbit holes. I use that term often when I was referencing writing the book. There's so many rabbit holes to the Bloody Mary. Right. And what you're describing right now, uh, it sounds uh, a lot like a conversation I had um, with Sean Sewell about the Toronto cocktail in that it was, you know, likely invented in a specific place in it, sort of a, a resort in Europe where a, a large contingent of Canadian guests would, would show up every year. And, you know, only years and years after it was popular at that resort did it actually get set down in writing. So uh, I think, you know, we experience this a lot, especially, um, you know, pre-1950s uh, in the American cocktail culture. And, um, you know, I, I think, I personally think that, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's important to have that focal point with Petiu at the St. Regis Hotel, King Cole, uh, the King Cole Bar with the with the vodka and the tomato juice it's almost like a it's almost like a clue murder formulation right there um but but it's it's important to have that as our nucleus because you know if, if there if you take nothing else away from this uh i think that's what we need to know that this is where it became popularized if not where it was invented and you know it it's i i would call it the 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 evolved version right as opposed to the uh you know what uh petu was perhaps making at Harry's New York bar in, in Paris, uh, previous to that. So, um, I think that's important to know, but it's maybe not the most colorful aspect of this murky little story. So, uh, could, could you introduce us to, uh, a, a gentleman named, uh, George Jessel? Yep. Yeah. George Jessel was, a like a vaudevillian actor and comedian, uh, who was based out of New York. And so where it gets a little bit more, layered is during the 1920s when Petiu was still in France uh, and the world was, or at least, I'm sorry, America was not uh, able to, to drink uh, legally. Um, and also, bear in mind, there was no canned tomato juice, at least not until 1928, uh, where the college inn started um, canning tomato juice. Um, George Jessel, this comedian, wrote an autobiography uh, I believe that came out in the 1950s, but he mentions in his autobiography how he had an all-night drinking session in 1927, and it was in Florida at some bar, beach bar, um, where they were just kind of grabbing things. It was all night. He was drinking all night, and early in the morning was just grabbing bottles behind the bar, kind of being his own bartender, and uh, grabbed this, you know, potato vodka that didn't smell so great, but started putting some ingredients together in it. Uh, and claims to basically say that he had an earlier or the original version of the Bloody Mary where he was using seasonings and spices and a mystery bottle of vodka and then the tomatoes to make it this early Bloody Mary. And 
as he was mixing it and walking around with it, one of his local guests was a socialite named Mary Warburton, and uh, some of it spilled on her dress, and she said, now you can call me Bloody Mary George. It's what he claims in his autobiography, and it's a hilarious story and a very colorful one, yeah, to say the least, but um, I, 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 I truly feel like as much as uh, that's the entertaining version of it. Uh, it. It just seems so outlandish to be to, to claim that you know 20 years later you've been drinking for 14 hours. This just all kind of happened, uh, and you're only you know so much later laying claim to it. I don't know. At the same time, what gives me some kind of reason to uh, consider all those stories and any other stories that haven't unearthed themselves yet is, you know, that's kind of how we discovered ourselves drinking in our cultures back then was we didn't have social media. We didn't have the internet. We couldn't, we couldn't leap from point A to point B so fast. We actually had, uh, we had to learn our, our culture and certain traditions through travel and hotel bars. Interestingly enough, were a lot of the places where you got the original recipe or the first published recipe, you know, in these older classic cocktail books, because that's how people, you know, an example, Somebody created a drink in New York and somebody would travel, a business person would travel across the country and go to Cleveland, Ohio and say, you have to make this drink I just had in New York called the Manhattan. <laughs> they would tell the bartender in Cleveland, Ohio, what the Manhattan was. And it kind of developed into its own, you know, from there. Um, and so history just has this like moving target to it, especially when it comes to cocktails. Let's be honest here. They don't, they're not, they're not sticklers for memory uh, and, and recall so so much as uh, other, other other things that we experience in our daily lives. Um, so you're kind of allowed to play jazz with history. And I think the Bloody Mary is a great example of a lot of people playing jazz and one person kind of having um, the most Miles Davis kind of <laughs> perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, per personally, I, I don't... I, I don't think I've come to a resting point on on what I think about uh, you know the, the the Bloody Mary in terms of you know who named it first, who invented it first, who invented it best, i.e., who perfected it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in in the process of doing this project called Breaking Bloody. I'm I'm putting together a spreadsheet that I hope I hope to eventually have over a hundred Bloody Mary recipes uh, from various online sources and um, in print sources. And if there's if there's one thing that is abundantly clear, it's that yes, there are common ingredients, uh, the tomato juice, the vodka, the some sort of uh, some sort of umami component, right? Generally Worcestershire sauce, uh, some sort of spice, um, but there is just widespread disagreement, uh, and maybe it's not even disagreement. It's, it's almost like a lack of care of exactly the ratios for these ingredients. And I, I don't know that I've come across that for any other drink. It's almost like, you know, when going back to what you were saying about the residents of Madison, Wisconsin, really appreciating a good Bloody Mary. Well, Compare that to saying like somebody appreciating a good old fashioned. Old fashioned is pretty simple. Two ounces of whiskey, half ounce of simple syrup, a couple dashes of bitters, stir. Really the only way to mess up the old fashioned is, 
you know, by mess, by deliberately not following the recipe or by executing it incorrectly by not stirring for long enough or not muddling the sugar cube with a little bit of water to make sure it dissolves. Like that's, those are process errors with the bloody Mary. It's almost like the, it's a template as opposed to a set recipe. What are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I would say, you know, it, it is a hundred percent. You're right. The fact that every every person has their own unique version of what makes it a different recipe, you know, it, that umami, I mentioned the words moving target earlier, like uh, all of our palates are, are wildly, you know, different. And I think that's what's made it so unique for so long, but also uh, it's what's kind of made it hard to pin down for so long. I, it, there literally is no template or definitive resource to use uh, uh, from, you know, the, the, the Petsu article in the New Yorker, from 1964 where he talks about um, initiating the Bloody Mary of today, um, literally putting in the, the salt, the pepper, the, the cayenne, the Worcestershire, the, the dash of lemon and um, the ice and the vodka, along with the tomato juice, you know, it, it, that is like at, at its most, I think, still bare bones and essential to, to use that as a reference for those ingredients. Um, but still, you're right. Everybody you talk to will remove one of those ingredients or add something else and say that's the ultimate Bloody Mary recipe, which is, in fact, like, it's not untrue and it's not, it's definitely not like, you know, definitive by any stretch. So uh, it's tough. I, I mean, I think there's seven quintessential ingredients. And if you work around those seven ingredients the way that there are four quintessential old fashioned ingredients, you are working off a template. And that should be the basis of it, albeit you're going to tweak those things and um, measurements are always going to be varied. But at the same time, uh, I think there's people out there who would pretty much associate it with, you know, those bare bones ingredients as the identifiable, identifiable principles of what makes a true Bloody Mary or a classic Bloody Mary. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I was going across the country and tasting different Bloody Marys, and I still do this to the to the day, there's there's no no consistency that I can. Uh, I mean, certain places they're hard to drink because they're too spicy or they're too too salty or they're too they have too much Worcestershire. So <laughs> uh, it's been unique, you know. And I think that's why I actually I'm lucky to grow up in Wisconsin because most of the places around here serve the Bloody Mary with a beer chaser, which can cut some of those. Uh, uneven palate angle, so to speak, uh, give you a little bit more of a, a fighting chance of appreciating the bloody. Right, right. Um, so we talked about like what a Bloody Mary is and, and the fact that, you know, it's this moving target analogy is I think probably the most useful thing that we've come across to describe exactly how people should think of it in recipe format. But nonetheless, the Bloody Mary still spawned these offshoots and riffs over time. Um, I'm thinking in particular uh, the Micheleta, the Bloody Caesar, uh, and, and somehow they all seem to still fit very much into that hangover cure slash brunch setting. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about those variations and, and um, you know, your thoughts on, um, you know, how they evolved or the role that they play? Sure. I think, you know, what really catapulted the Bloody Mary into its, its 
modern day popularity would have to be brunch and the fact that people started generating more interest in um, congregating on the weekends, early in the mornings with family, with friends, um, socializing, uh, and the Bloody Mary just skyrocketed. Uh, uh, people traveled more in the 60s and 70s, which developed more of that hotel culture that I was referencing earlier. And I think people were um, interested in having buffets uh, more back back then, which today that's just not a realistic thing with COVID, obviously. Um, so uh, with that socializing contingent and how people were uh, connecting, the Bloody Mary became this kind of social dynamic where you you made it so colorful with all the different garnishes and whatnot. You um, you know raise your glass and look around uh, to your left and right and see who else was having one as a way of kind of celebrating what transpired the night before, what you could talk about and relay from um, previous uh, experiences or what you were looking forward to that day. You know, it, it had this really strong social construct of connecting us. And uh, I think it was only in a matter of time, the way that the old fashioned developed different recipes and different styles that the Bloody Mary was going to do the same. So, uh, you know, in certain circles, the red eye became popular. Um, uh, that's probably, it, originally it's also, I should cut myself off here and, and mention that originally one of the first recipes ever published in the Bloody Mary was 1941 uh, and it was called the Red Snapper um, uh, in uh i'm sorry no i believe it was a couple of years after 1941 i'm gonna get my i'm gonna get my stories wrong here i'm sorry uh are my years wrong um the um the original bloody mary recipe was published in 1941 um but i believe red snapper was how it was referenced in certain circles with um even uh, with the saint regis hotel they renamed it it was originally the bloody mary and was renamed uh due to the fact that Allegedly, the owner of the hotel, um, Astor, was told um, told Petu that he didn't like the name Bloody Mary. It's probably because his wife was named Mary at the time, so that didn't help. But um, it was nicknamed the Red Snapper, and there was also um, a Red Snapper seasoning spice out from the Pacific Northwest, which probably contributed to that nickname for the drink. But um, because vodka was scarce in the 1930s, they used gin as a substitute for it in certain circles. So uh, the Red Snapper, which was a Bloody Mary made with gin, became somewhat popular and developed uh, its own following in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, subsequent to that, yeah, some other variations took place. And the Red Eye, uh, which is strictly just a, a mashup of tomato juice and beer, became very popular in the Midwest, in the central part of America. Um, I found when I was traveling through Nebraska that that was a very popular go-to drink for a lot of people um, in the Nebraska area. You know, I think uh, it's a refreshing drink that it's a little less complicated. You know, you've got two ingredients, beer and tomato juice. Uh, it can be refreshing uh, if you cut the, um, one or the other um, and want to have an early morning drink. Uh, and the Michelada, um, obviously, which is kind of like a Bloody Mary without the vodka, um, and just more of a seasoning and spice with lime juice instead of lemon juice. Uh, I believe in Mexico is where that started uh, as a way of celebrating or drinking um, something, uh, beer with a little bit more of a kick to it, if you want to call it that. And I mean, those 
those drinks still kind of exist and uh, they're popular for, for their own specific reasons. I, I love the fact that there's a good variety out there. Um, you can always walk into a place that cares about their Bloody Mary game and you'll see some, some healthy options. Yeah. And then of course we also have the Bloody Caesar, which is, uh, you know, I, I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, this is almost something that spun off from a, a product, right? So we have V8, right? Everyone who has gone to a grocery store ever has seen a huge, you know, shelf full of V8 uh, vegetable juice, tomato juice, whatever uh, kind of blend it is. But then we have something that hits the shelves uh, actually at a point that I'm not really aware uh, called uh, Clamato, which is, I, I first encountered it, um, I, I grew up going to Canada to visit my mom's side of the family in Quebec, and the first time I came across Clamato was was there, and it was just, it blew my mind. I had never come across it, um, but it's it's wildly popular up there. Right, yeah, it, it was, I believe in the 1960s, Clamato, or, or at least Clam, they started Clamato maybe in the 1970s, post- when the, the the Bloody Caesar was created at a hotel in Calgary in the late 1960s. And um, it catapulted into popularity in Canada, for sure. The Bloody Caesar, uh, by the mid-1970s, was the most popular cocktail across the country. Um, making the clam juice was definitely difficult for bartenders early on. But um, uh, I believe by the mid-1970s, when it started to just run its popularity was when Clamato was introduced. Um, it's unique and it's definitely very prevalent throughout Canada and you rarely see it in the United States, but one of my restaurants, which also featured seafood in New York, it's called Jeffrey's Grocery, had a wildly popular version of a Bloody Caesar. Um, you know, any place that shucks oysters is going to have should have, in my opinion, a really great Bloody Caesar available for everybody. It's they're, they're, It cuts the thickness of the tomato a little bit more uh, with the, using the Clamato since it's a thinner version. Um, and it's definitely unique, yeah, in terms of that umami uh, punch. But, um, wow, and it's made well. It's really special. Yeah, and, I, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that the Bloody Mary is such a – it, it seems like it wants to be, and all all kind of riffs on the Bloody Mary as well, want to be something that is not vegan, something that has some sort of like almost seafoody aspect to it. Whether you're talking about the anchovies and the Worcestershire sauce, or you're talking about the, the you know the, the clam juice or, or or something something else that kind of mimics that, um, it's it's bizarre because most people think of it as like cold, like it's gazpacho in a glass with vodka to a lot of people, um, but they don't realize that they're getting that healthy dose. Um, it, it's honestly one of the things that I'm most fascinated about, and, and I believe our, our next installment that we're, we're currently working on putting together is, is actually going to examine that umami element in as much depth as possible. So I'm excited for that. Um, but I wanted to return to this idea of brunch and, uh, you know, you made a, a really important point earlier in saying that like, well, we, we ain't doing that no more. Um, we, we, we're not getting together in big hotel uh, dining rooms and, and uh, getting shoulder to shoulder at buffets for obvious reasons. So 
I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the potential history of the Bloody Mary. And, and my my first off-the-cuff thought is, like, are we about to see a, a drinking landscape where the Bloody Mary goes underground for a while? Um, you know, ugh. I, 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 I do hear what you're saying there. I, I, I don't feel that it, it, it will reach that kind of uh, element. I mean, what I will say is definitely the Bloody Mary bar at, you know, the respective hotel or uh, restaurant or, or, or bar that is noted for its, its endless supply of, you know, Bloody Mary garnish stand. If you're, um, if you're having, you know, that early morning breakfast, well, that is the 1995 all you can eat or 1995, you know, full, full breakfast, uh, that includes a drink or the Bloody Mary bar, those will definitely not be around for a little while, for sure. But I still feel like you can get a quality-made Bloody Mary with a healthy variety of ingredients um, anywhere that they are still able to safely serve people, you know, indoors and outdoors, obviously. Um, but uh, we have two Bloody Marys on our menu at Settle Down right now, and both are popular. Both people drink them day and night, interestingly enough. So it's not just necessarily a brunch thing anymore. I feel like if you're you're creating variations on a drink that might be associated with brunch and you're and you're adjusting the the ingredients enough that people are, are open to trying it at ten o'clock at night as much as they are at ten o'clock in the morning, then you're seeing evolution. And that's an, uh, that's a special thing to take away from it is that um it might not, I'll say, I might actually turn it back to the question and say it might not just be for brunch anymore. It might not be a breakfast drink anymore from what I'm seeing, which is great. Yeah, and I also like what you were saying about um, the potential to market the Bloody Mary as a healthier version of a cocktail. Um you know, obviously, for people who are looking to avoid hangovers, the the absence of congeners is something that's appealing. So you want a clear spirit, and and you know, of course, all the vodka companies are going to take that to the nth degree by explaining how many times they filter their vodka. Um, so so that seems like an obvious way into that niche, as as well as the fact that uh, you know you could you could actually present a caloric or nutritional profile of a Bloody Mary that's actually relatively attractive even to people who are doing low carb or keto or um, sort of vegetable dense diets. Oh yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Um, and even go so far as to adjust the, the ABV for doing something that isn't necessarily vodka, but also um, a variation or uh, something with a little lower you know, sherry, for example, actually works really well in Bloody Marys, and we're talking about something that is significantly less ABV than um, your standard bottled vodka. So um, there's no end to exploring those possibilities. I will say, you know, um, due to the fact that we've been experiencing COVID together since March, that people's home bartending skills have have also evolved and developed, and so people are are I think expanding their their bar library, if you will, and uh, getting a little bit more experimental and comfortable with making uh, homemade homemade drinks. So uh, it's a great thing, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I personally just uh, 
kind of de- I'm sort of in developing homemade hot sauce recipes because I have a bunch of hot peppers growing outside. And uh, it, it seems like this is also a great time to start playing around with your house Bloody Mary mix because, you know, in the end, if you're talking about a brunch situation or, you know, any sort of uh, large service situation, you're going to want to create a, a blend that you just add the vodka to. Uh, garnish and serve. So, um, you know, obviously this is a, a good time to start playing around with riffs on that so that when the time comes to uh, actually get together again, you've got sort of an ironclad recipe that you can pull out of your back pocket or your computer and uh, scale to the number of guests that you're anticipating and just be off to the races um, in a really sophisticated way that might not have otherwise happened without all, uh, without all of this free time to experiment. Right. Yep. So, Wrapping up here, uh, I, I wanted to return to the book and, and just ask you, you know, what you took away most importantly from putting together all of the recipes and uh, getting them photographed in this book? Because obviously it's very beautiful. As you mentioned earlier, the, the Bloody Mary is almost like a party hat for your hand when you're, you know, sitting there at your table with your five shrimp skewered on there and your mini cheeseburger and your seven celery sticks. It's, it's obviously a a, a visual delight as well as, um, you know, as well as a culinary one. So, um, what were your big takeaways from, from doing all that work and and doing all the recipe testing? You know, I I got to work with an incredible photographer, um, Eric Metzger, who, who's, who's done some work with, done a lot of work with imbibe and punch. And, uh, he photographed, Southern Teague's latest book uh, and Wiley Dufresne's cookbook, and he's doing uh, Katana Kitten's book coming up here. Um, so getting the chance to work with somebody who is now a dear friend made the whole experience really meaningful. Um, and especially with our publisher, uh, Ten Speed, who couldn't have been more accommodating and, and uh, my editor, Emily Timberlake, um, the whole team there, um, all the way through to uh, the publisher, Aaron, been nothing but wonderful and, and really terrific people to kind of allow me, uh, that was my first experience writing a book, um, having a lot of experience writing, but not not in the publishing world. Uh, I was amazed and really pleased and uh, really um, felt, um, they allowed me to have my own voice, actually, which uh, I was terrified, one, might be misinterpreted or, or, or not really feel like it was injected in the right way. I didn't want it to be a stuffy book of like just historical uh, fact that um, came across as being a little too textbooky. And uh, they allowed uh, not only the uh, experience of just me using my own voice to, and my own story and angle on how I wanted to capture the Bloody Mary and its history, but also um, we shot at all of my restaurants in New York. They were cool about um, making that be a part of it. Um, so those images, those are a really great time capsule for me to kind of remember and appreciate what my life was like then around 2017, 2016. And, you know, some of the famous drinks that we served at our restaurants, um, it, it, it really still holds up. Um, and I got to interview some terrific people and feature some recipes from dear friends in the industry, uh, which is one of my favorite things to do, you know, um, more than anything is just to kind of celebrate and share um, good, good things like this, as opposed to just kind of uh, covet them. Uh, I, I like, uh, I'm much more comfortable 
when you know i'm if for example if i'm bartending if all my friends are in the room rather than a bunch of strangers right it was a it was a fun project that involved a lot of dear friends that i still hold dear today well that's great to hear uh, obviously a lot of uh, excellent books coming out of 10 speed so um, you know, that's, that's something I would, I would really encourage folks to check out. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's almost like the same way you trust, uh, an, an importer, uh, who will import wines, for example, that fit your palate. It's almost the same way when you can find a publisher that, that really curates, um, books on certain topics and, you know, sort of commissions them and brings them from, you know, the, the, idea phase all the way through to the the finished physical product. So I, I do encourage folks to check out 10 speed. Uh, obviously we'll have links uh, to Brian's bloody Mary book, as well as uh, your newest project over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Uh, before we jump into a couple of special bloody Mary related lightning round questions here, um, tell us a little bit about the United States of cocktails. Yeah. So, um, I, I come from a small town in Wisconsin and um, I've always been you know, a, a child of choose your own adventure stories growing up um, and fascinated by the way that the world works, um, especially America because it is our, our home country, but also it's so big and varied and unique. And when I started bartending in my, my formative years, uh, late teens, early 20s, um, it was pretty obvious to me how unique the drinking culture in Wisconsin was with all the different specialty uh, beverages, the, the beer chaser with the Bloody Mary, like I mentioned, the ice cream drinks that they drink all the way into the wintertime, and uh, uh, the shots of Angostura at the Nelson's Bitter Hall up in Washington Island, as well as the unique brandy old fashioned. Uh, and so after working you know, behind a bar for many years and and meeting people from all over the country, it just dawned on me how unique our regional drinking cultures were from state to state and uh, city to city, obviously. And it always kind of made me curious about, you know, what are they doing in New Mexico that's different than Wisconsin? What are they doing in um, South Carolina that's different from New York? And, you know, the history that, that surrounds all that. Um, so I was really inspired to do a little bit, do a little bit of a, a more ex, a deeper exploration into um, state-by-state drinking traditions, uh, which is what arrived eventually with the United States of Cocktails, which just came out last week. And uh, it features drinking traditions, it features recipes in every state, um, one classic, one modern recipe, uh, different voices. I interviewed over 100 people throughout the country bartenders, um, professional restaurant people, uh, brand ambassadors, um, voices from all over that have been influential to me, but also I think are really important people that would, uh, um, would also be uh, great representatives of our cultures and our, our, our connections to each other um, from state to state and uh, how we've really evolved, especially in the last 20 years with, with cocktail culture. In uh, our development, you know, distilleries alone in the last 20 years have grown so much. Um, it's fascinating. And so I wanted to capture a book, which I uh, hopefully did, uh, that was about the fun facts that we can retain from our evolution as a country, but also um, celebrating the people that made us 
where we are today um, feel so inspired by our, our, our surroundings and our local drinking cultures as much as the national scale. Uh, and that's the United States of Cocktails. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack in that book. And I'm happy to report that, yeah, I've gotten some good reviews so far. Yeah, what's exciting to me is um, just like with uh, our now mutual friend Ivy Mix's book, Spirits of Latin America, I think that while we're all stuck at home, it's easy to be self-referential and, and, uh, and, and to have your world shrink in a way that you don't necessarily notice. And so I, I really value the books that have a travelogue and a multivocal aspect to them where you've got lots of different voices, lots of different perspectives. It, it's a sort of antidote to shrinking inside yourself and, and, um, you know, like Hamlet being, uh, being the, the, the kingdom, you know, a kingdom, the size of a, of a walnut shell, uh, or something like that, that I just misquoted. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 am excited to, uh, to, to check out that book myself. And, um, I'm, I'm really glad that you, uh, you seem to have put it out at a, at a time when we all need to, uh, take a little road trip in our heads. Yeah. Yeah. Shakespeare was a huge fan of Bloody Marys before uh, they became popular. And uh, we'll, we can just come up with that. We'll come up with that myth together. Yeah. I'm, I, I seen, I see no reason why he wouldn't have been. Yeah. I'll, I'll start working on that conspiracy theory because uh, yeah. I, I think that one will, will grow legs. Uh, I really do. Yeah. All right. A couple of lightning round questions. You ready? Sure. Sure. Of course. Okay. What is your favorite way to garnish a Bloody Mary, and what's the most outrageous or over-the-top way that you've seen one garnished? Uh, favorite way is, has to be just simple and easy. I'm, I'm really not a fan of uh, the big garnish display. Uh, lemon and a celery stalk are really just kind of boom right there. Um, I, I actually don't like the big pickles. Uh, so cornichons for small pickles, but really just a lemon and or a celery stalk. It really doesn't need to be more complicated than that. Um, yeah. In terms of outrageous or over-the-top things, what, what's the what's the biggest abomination that you can call to mind? Definitely uh, the three-pound fried chicken on top of eight other skewers of different garnishes was insane. And that took place at Sobelman's Bar in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, of all places. They go through such labor-intensive builds on constructing each Bloody Mary, which comes in an 80-ounce pitcher. It's, it's essentially a, a, a pitcher, but they say it's an 80-ounce mug. But they serve you a pitcher of Miller Lite while they're making it. That's how long it takes, and that's how labor-intensive it is. It is gaudy, but also it's just kind of unbelievable that it exists in the world, and I'm, I'm kind of happy it does. <laughs> but, yeah, it's there in Milwaukee. That's incredible. Okay, next question. Um, this is gonna take uh, this is gonna take the form of one, the other, or both. The first one here, we have three choices, um, and these all refer to ingredients to be used in a Bloody Mary. So, first one: lemon, lime, or vinegar for your acid. Lemon. Celery stock or celery seed. Celery stock for sure. Hot sauce or horseradish. Hot sauce for sure. I'm not the horseradish type, although I like freshly braided horseradish. That is really good. Worcestershire sauce or A1 sauce? Uh, I like A1. Old Bay or Cayenne? I, having grown up in the Midwest, I did not 
get subjected to Old Bay, but when I found out about Old Bay and started having it more on uh, my seafood on the East Coast, I really kind of felt like Old Bay, uh, that's my jam, Old Bay. All right, this refers to texture, thin and sipped through a straw or thick and gulped from a pint glass? I'm, I'm guilty of creating both, uh, especially right now. There is a little bit of a, our Green Bay Bloody Mary is a little bit thicker due to the tomatillos. Um, but I prefer the thinner version and sip through the straw, um, although those go down really fast. So one has to be careful. Right, right. Uh, it seems to it seems to lend itself better to the brunch or hangover cure, and the uh, the the other is more of a sort of a, a salad smoothie kind of. So, yeah. <laughs> um, any face offs that I'm missing here in terms of uh, classic classic um, you know ingredient face offs? I guess spirit. You know, um, everybody has their own spirit selection, and I know vodka is the atypical choice and and the industry standard, but um, it's not mine. I actually prefer. Um, uh, gin or um, mezcal in my Bloody Marys. Um, so I guess that's a unique little curveball. Um, mm-hmm. I sometimes, I, I get a funny look from people sometimes when I specify I would like gin or mezcal in the Bloody. Um, I don't always order it, but I, I, I definitely like a little bit more of an extra enhanced flavor. Totally. And, and I think botanicals, uh, smokiness and or um, you know, infused vodkas are, are a, a huge opportunity. Um, so, so yeah, totally. All right. Next, what is your stance on brunch in general? And to be more precise, is there a time of day when it becomes a faux pas to order a Bloody Mary? And I know we covered some of this, but give us a soundbite. No, that's fine. Um, absolutely. Um, I grew up, I grew up, mind you, bartending at brunch. I learned how to bartend at brunch. So it was very easy for me to dislike it since all the cool, awesome bartenders bartended on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, which meant that I was a loser because I was just a brunch bartender and had to get up early so I couldn't really work those busy, awesome nights. So it made me resent brunch at first. But then I realized brunch is a really great way to get all of your friends together and um, celebrate the good times and have 18 different drinks you know, in front of you, coffee, orange juice, water, Bloody Mary. <laughs> side of beer uh it's just this wild unbridled party and there's a way of appreciating brunch some people in this industry will absolutely swear that it is not part of one of their favorite parts of this industry but i think there's a way to appreciate it you know um and i 100 percent think you can have a bloody mary any time of the day even if that means it's last call and the bartender's trying to like close up and you ask for a bloody mary if they have the ability to make a Bloody Mary. Uh, there's no wrong time to order a Bloody Mary. Mm, I love it. The last call Bloody Mary. It's almost like you're, it's like you're playing 3D chess and you're already, you're already at brunch the next morning. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, well, Brian, this is, this has been really illuminating. I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to share your expertise on this. Uh, could you just give us a couple bits of information before we sign off? First, um, where can folks purchase your books? Obviously, the, the Bloody Mary book in the, United, in the United States of Cocktails. And then um, how, how would we get in touch with you digitally and on the social medias? Sure. Yeah. And thank you to everybody for listening in. And thank you for having me, first and foremost. Um, the easiest way to access the books, you can, you can order them on Amazon. Uh, of course, uh, Bloody Mary or the United States of Cocktails, but also they are available um, 
uh, at bookshop.org, which is a new independent bookseller that celebrates and uh, supports local independent books, uh, bookstores and businesses, which is really great. Uh, my easiest ways of uh, communicating with me would be my Instagram, which is my name, Brian Bartles, B-R-I-A-N-B-A-R-T-E-L-S. And that's also my website, brianbartles.com. So pretty easy formats once you just search that Google machine um, and come up pretty fast. Fantastic. Well, Brian, um, again, we are all thinking about you and all the other bar owners out there. Um, so for anybody who does get the chance to swing through Madison, uh, please check out Settle Down Tavern. Uh, I've cruised the menu and my goodness, uh, you know, it, it might be a pandemic, but uh, there, there's a there's a wealth of uh, victual riches uh, on that menu. So uh, I, I, it, it's the it's the sort of menu where it's like if I was if I was doing sort of the um, the high density bar tavern neighborhood like menu cruise to figure out where I would want to eat, it would be the one where I stop. And like, don't need to continue on and review all the other recipes out or the other uh, menus outside. It's uh, yep, this is it done. Yeah, thank you for saying that. That's kind of what we were aiming for, right there. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Brian, uh, thanks again so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was produced by Sarah Baker with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Bloody Mary insights by Brian Bartles, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.